baby, what time is it? <laughs> Welcome to MMA Fancast. This is Luke Basin. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Jim Mooney. And today we have a special guest uh, on the phone with us, Tony Gravely, who is the current CES champion at 135, which is bantamweight. Welcome, Tony. Can you hear us? Yes, sir. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Welcome to the show. We're really excited to have you. Uh, you currently have an 18-5 and five professional MMA record. Six of those wins are in a row now. You've defended your CES belt twice, and you've won 10 out of your last 11. So it's been a pretty good run for you of late. Yes, it has. It's, um, you know, I went through like a bit of a rough patch at one point. Um, I think every fighter that, um, you know, that is a real fighter and is going to stick it out is going to run into that rough patch. So, um, you know, I, I hit a point where, you know, I had, out of my last couple of fights, had more losses than wins. Um, this was a couple of years back, and uh, that that kind of helped me. Um, what well, definitely did help me as a fighter, helped me uh, get through, and um, you know, help help show me how bad I really wanted to be a fighter. Yeah, I actually saw that in 2017. You uh, you had lost. Uh, three out of four, and obviously that's a rough patch at a pro at a pro record. What helped you turn that corner? Was it a training thing? Was it a mental thing? Because you've been on a tear since then, winning ten out of eleven. Um, it was I'd say um, probably a mental thing, as far as um, you know, you, you lose the guys, and you know the the guys I lost to weren't tough, but you know I feel like those are guys that if we fought again, um, things would be different. And um, I think the biggest difference is, um, I guess, my fight IQ and not being too, uh, not being too stubborn and respecting people in uh, certain areas and just learning to be more strategic, um, approaching every opponent. And uh, just, you know, what got me through that um, was just being mentally tough and um, just realizing that, um, you know, it's, it's either – um, I quit and, uh, um, you know, give up on something that I've always wanted to do, a dream I've always had, or, you know, I suck it up and, uh, you know, get the ball rolling again and, and start fresh. And uh, that's exactly what I did. Absolutely. And, you know, I was just checking. I had said a little earlier that you've won six in a row. What I didn't realize until I double-checked is that all six of those wins in a row have been by some type of stoppage. Uh, whether it be submission, you have a rear naked choke, whether it be a TKO, um, a referee stoppage. What's it like to be on that dominant of a win, not just a win streak of six, but a six stoppage win streak? Is that more important to you to have the stoppages rolling, or would you be okay if they were uh, unanimous decisions or decisions? 
Um, I, I, I love the stoppages. You know, I went through a patch where um, I had nothing but decisions. And that was right after I um, – I said that, that was, like, after my, my – you know, where I lost a couple. And it was just mm-hmm. – I just want to win. You just want to do just enough to win. And I got to the point where, um, you know, it, it's not just about winning. I want to show that I'm I'm tons better. And I, I want to put uh, – start finishing people. And, you know, once you – you know, once you like knock somebody out, it's like, man, that felt good. And you want to keep <laughs> doing, it, you want to keep doing it. And uh, you know, I was fortunate enough. Well, I guess fortunate wouldn't quite be where I, I worked hard for it to get, you know, um, to where I, where I've gotten to. But um, just w- once you feel that, what it's like to to break somebody and to um, you know, knock them unconscious or, you know, it, it's just, it's almost like a, you feel like immortal for a split second, but I mean, it can happen to anybody. It, it's just a part of it. But, um, you know, it's a feeling that I, I'm always going to chase now. It's, it's not just about winning now. It, it's wanting, yeah. wanting to beat people and I uh, want to beat people so bad that um, they don't want to rematch you again. Yeah, well, that's definitely a great thing. You know, you just fought a little over a month ago in March in Connecticut for CES. And so what Jim and I have done recently, we've talked to fighters and done entire shows where we just talked about their fight breakdown. And we're going to ask you about a lot more, and Jim's got some great questions for you. But if you could, for maybe a minute or two, if you could give me a breakdown of your most recent win, which was a title defense for CES in Connecticut, which is actually streamed on UFC uh, Fight Pass, which is a pretty great thing. Um, you got the you got the rear naked choke just seconds before the end of the second round. So if you could walk us through that fight, kind of what led up to that finish, as sort of because you were talking about it's a mental thing and you have to kind of look for the finish. So how did that come about in your last fight? Um, my last fight, um, I fought uh, Darren Mima. Um, he's a tough guy. He's fought a lot of tough people, um, and I knew that going into that fight, um, he was going to be tough and he wasn't going to quit. So which I like fights like that because I, I see fights as, um, you know, it's, it's um, one man's will versus another man's will, you know, when um, it's all about skill and all that stuff, extremely important, obviously. But at the end of the day, you get to a point to where um, when you start to wear people out um, and that skill is starting to go down, it, it's whose will is going to be stronger. And, um, you know, I feel like with that fight, I slowly start chopping away at his will and um, there was a point where uh, I think he went for a heel hook in the second round, and I kind of backspun out of it and took his back. And, um, you know, as soon as I took his back, I slid the arm across, and it was pretty tight. I didn't even realize it was only like four to six seconds left. I just knew that I was going to squeeze it until his head popped off or the ref stopped. I was just squeezing that thing, and, uh, you know, it was a short time, and, you know, I feel like most fighters would have tried to hold on if they heard the, uh, you know, that they knew that it was four seconds. But I feel like I squeezed so hard that it was, um, he didn't even want to hold on, um, wanted to hold out the, the last couple seconds. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, we saw that with DJ with the, with the arm bar with the second to go or two seconds to go in a 25-minute fight that when a submission is good enough, it's going to end the fight regardless of how close it is to the end of the round. But it is a testimony to how strong you are in the squeeze, as Joe Rogan would say, the squeeze, uh, because he wasn't able to gut it out for four more seconds. Um, now, now, this is just a random thing that popped up my mind as a coach. 
Had you ever practiced a scramble from a failed heel hook? I mean, obviously a rear naked choke is a go-to submission from somebody's back. But when you're when you're doing BJJ, do you work weird positions? Because there's not a lot of times where people are practicing heel hook defenses into back take submissions. Is that something you've rolled through? Or is you just being opportunistic? Um, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, when you grapple, um, you're opportunistic when you when you're actually rolling so it's not like a particular move that we practice mm -hmm. i've done it um with wrestling and scrambling um i've wrestled my whole majority of my life so um scrambling um at you know in, in the jiu-jitsu level comes pretty pretty natural mm -hmm. obviously the more uh scrambles are different you know you don't want to get caught in certain things but i've over the years i've learned um what works and what doesn't and um mm -hmm heel hooks usually i backspin out of them and uh whether i get somebody's back or they keep my leg i usually figure for it and then mm. you know finish it but um he let it go so he didn't most people keep it and then you uh you know you figure for and you end up in like a half guard scenario yeah. or something. but he he let it go so um i just latched onto his back and uh got got the choke well, congratulations. Congratulations on that. Does it feel different? This is my last question before Jim. Jim's got some good ones, and I'm hogging the time here. But, Champ, does it, does it feel different now? You've been a champ a few different promotions. CES, you won by a slam, which I'd love to ask about. You don't see that as a win a lot. Um, but you won by a slam. You've defended it twice. Does it mean more to you? I mean, obviously you want to get wins, but is there a part of you that likes defending a belt and having a, a belt? Or are you just about as many wins as you can get? What's the, the champ term mean to you? Um, to me, you know, I don't really look too much in, into um, titles of, you know, being a champ in this. You know, I think um, before I won that belt, I was a champion. You know, my mindset, um, the belt just shows people that you're actually a champion. You know, that's, it's more for, for me, I think that's more for other people's sake. Oh, yeah, he's a champion. But for me, um, it doesn't matter – whether it's for a belt or a dollar or nothing, you know, I, I want to win. And uh, I've always been like that when I was younger. The last thing I want to do is, is lose a fight all the time when I like growing up is the last thing you want to do is get beat up in front of somebody. So, um, you know, being, being a champ, I think it's for me, I think it's more cool for um, people that I know, like, mm. like the kids that I teach and stuff, you know, they think it's really cool um, to me. I don't. I try not to get caught up in things like that because um, at the end of the day, a fight to fight, whether you're the champ or not, um, the guy across from you is going to try to come take your head off, um, no matter you know whether it's got a crown on it or if it doesn't. You know. So. Um, Absolutely. And as a and as a fighter, you know this. When you get into a cage, you have to have a short memory, and you're not a ch you're not the champion until you win again that night. You know, because people that walk into a cage thinking I'm on a six fight winning streak. Or, you know, I've already won this belt a few times, uh, that then they're not in the fight that moment. And something you brought up, which I think is really powerful, is that you that you train and you coach kids. And obviously it's exciting for them to know somebody that to them is their coach, but to also know that you're a, a champ and a professional, I think it gives sort of that inspiration and confirmation so that when you tell them, Hey, good job, good work, they think it they think it not as just my coach, but this is a champ telling me, and you know how big that is to a kid's self-esteem, which is great. But what's it like teaching What's it like teaching kids, even though you're in a fight camp and you're getting ready, like your last fight, big fight, defense, at, at, in Connecticut, on UFC Fight Pass, 
did you still balance being a coach or did you take a step away to just train for eight weeks? How did you do a fight camp when, when you were building up to this most recent fight? Um, it, it's usually the same for me. Everyone's pretty every every fight camp. I, I tell people my whole life's a fight camp because I'm constantly training the same same thing. But um, but it, it's the same. It's be, being a coach for me, like being around kids, is it's a humbling experience because it, it keeps you. It makes you hold yourself to a higher standard. And you you know I can't be big headed around these kids. Most kids, honestly, um, they like I never tell them when I have fights. They just know mm-hmm. that. Uh, somebody fills in for me when I have to leave. So, you know, I don't come back and say, oh, I did this and this and this. Um, but their their parents kind of keep up with it. And they'll say, oh, Mr. Tony won. And then the kids will come in and, you know, they'll make a big deal about it. They want me to bring my belts in and stuff. So um, it's, for me, it, it's just, it keeps me balanced. It keeps me down to earth. And, um, you know, it, it keeps me where I know that um, I'm not going to go out and do something crazy because these kids they look at me as somebody that you know they they kind of want to be like which is a big um for me it it's you know it makes me feel great that's probably the best thing a kid could say to you is like uh you're the hero or they want to be like you when you grow up so um because of that i always make myself um i make sure that i'm not saying crazy stuff i'm not talking junk to people i'm not calling mm-hmm. people out because um I can't go out and tell these kids in class, don't do this, don't do that. And then I go out and do the same thing. So uh, I try to practice what I preach to the kids. Um, uh, if anything, if I ever show them the fight, it's because I'm, I'm like, well, I did this and uh, this is, this is why you should do this, you know, for example purposes. But, um, <clears throat> but as far as, as far as my camps um, and me coaching and training, um, I, I just mix it in. And it also helps me as a fighter being a coach because sometimes you don't look at things a certain way until you actually step back and tell tell somebody to do something a certain way so um i i enjoy i I love it absolutely that's a that's a great response because i think it's good as a coach to be mentally looking to improve and then you can say wait a second i get in that situation yes i'm not 10 but i get in that same situation my 10 year old just did that i'm coaching and i have to remember to do move this way or do this way uh, because if it works for 10, it's going to work for me, particularly because fundamentals are always where people get in trouble. You watch the UFC, you're in CES guys get caught by fundamental mistakes all the time. And a lot of that it's because they get good enough where some of the fundamentals don't seem to matter as much because they've got the flash and the skill and the speed, and then they start making mistakes. Um, so th- that's a great, that's a great mindset to have. Yeah, you know, I, Luke, I am so glad that you brought up fundamentals. You've heard me talk about that before um, with, uh, you know, my, my past, you know, playing baseball and spring training and the fundamentals and how we always went back to basics. And I think that's part of uh, pretty much any game out there and uh, fundamentals. And if you don't have the basics or if you're weak on the, on the basics, it's hard to advance. But advancing is – uh, just like Tony had said, you know, in the beginning of this conversation, there's a, a mental part of the game that I think most fans overlook. So this is really just like a comment, not necessarily a question. And you can respond to it as you want, Tony. But um, I liked what you said before um, about the fight and improving your fight IQ. And you made a comment. I don't remember verbatim what it was, but it was basically 
one man's will versus another mm -hmm. man's will and which one will come out on top. And we had um, a podcast a few weeks ago where we talked to another fighter and, um, and the, the line of questioning was um, about the finishes and how, how you would uh, want that outcome to happen. Would you rather have a knockout or um, submission? And his response was that he would rather he, – he, he'll take the knockout any time, but um, to your line of thinking is where he went with it. And he said that he would rather get the submission because that is him imposing his – his plan, his game onto the other fighter, and the other fighter has to submit to him. So he's basically submitting to his opponent's will. I, th I thought that was pretty interesting hearing what you had to say. And, and as I said before, I don't think most fans really take into account that part of the fight game. You're, you're exactly right. Uh, um, you know, I, I feel like people watch my fights – and they think what like some people, I guess if they don't understand wrestling or understand, um, you know, being a physical, uh, physical fight with another man, um, you guys are fighting, and you can I can feel when I fight people, I can you can feel them slowly start to just um, their will starts to give, um, they're mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually broken. And for me, that's the favorite, that's my favorite part about fighting. Cause it's, I know I'm not going to quit. Like, you know, I'm going to go and go and go until I just can't go, you know? And, uh, that's the way I train. So, um, to, to be in there with another man and you, and you're, you're, you're slowly taking a piece out of them and you can feel that they're ready to go and you, and you just give them a way out. That's for me, that's, that's my favorite part about fighting. Is just, just making another man quit. Yeah, you know, sometimes it's evident on camera for us as fans when we're watching it. But obviously with me never being in the ring, I could never experience that. But, you know, we get to hear your experiences and other fighters and passing along when that happens where you can, you can feel it physically that he's losing something and it's, uh, it's both physical and mental. Um, so uh, to get to my first question, uh, Luke had mentioned this before about the, uh, the winning streak that you're on. Um, Tapology has you ranked number one in, um, in the Northeast, in the Southeast, in New England um, for Bantamweight. Um, you're also ranked number, one, or number three Bantamweight in the U.S. Um, so, you know, the way that I would look at somebody like that, 18-5 and five record, winning 10 out of 11 – um, to, you know, def consecutive defenses for, uh, for the current belt that you hold for CES. What, what is it that you've got to do to get noticed by either Scott Coker or Dana White? That's, you know, that's a good question. That's exactly what I want to know. Um, you know, I, honestly, there's really not much I can do other than keep doing what I'm doing. And, um, you know, I've gotten to the point where I, I know what's going to come. I just need to stop worrying about it because I got to the point where I was worried about it all the time. Like, mm -hmm. like what is what is taking so long? Like, why am I not getting the call? Um, but, you know, it, it's one of those things where um, I, I know it's coming. 
and I just um, just have to keep doing what I'm doing. But and if and if there's something else that I need to do, I, I wish somebody would you know would tell me. But um, honestly, I, I don't know. That's a question that I, I can never really answer. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just curious because you know it it by by all accounts and any sort of measuring stick that you would hold um, to you versus you know somebody in on either of those rosters that you would favorably compare to to any of them. And you know, that's my opinion, and, and I think Luke would be in agreement with that. Um, so we had uh, – there's a couple fighters. Um, actually, I can think of one fighter who he feels like he's ready to go make the step to, um, to UFC or Bellator. He's a local fighter out of Pittsburgh. Um, just fought recently for an uh, inaugural event, um, new promotion in, in town. Um, called 247 Fighting Championships. Um, there's there's another fighter that we had interviewed uh, quite a while back. Um, and his name's Mark Cherico, and he he was on Dana White's Tuesday Night um, Contender Series. And you know, I'm, I'm sure that you're familiar with it. It's basically like a, a one and done, and you want to win as impressively as you can because that's really what's going to get you the contract, not just um, winning your fight. You know, they sit back and they take, take a look at all the winners and how they won. And obviously for them, it's what's going to be best for the show, which, you know, UFC is definitely in the entertainment business. Um, he went into that fight uh, with an injury that he did not disclose, but he had to take the opportunity because UFC's calling, giving us opportunity. And, you know, he ended up, um, unsuccessfully, uh, you know, losing that bout. Um, but he, he did say that he had an opportunity to do the ultimate fighter and he chose, um, the, the Tuesday night contender series instead. Um, I never got to ask him why he made that choice, but if that was presented to you or you could either do, um, the Tuesday night fight or the ultimate fighter, which route would you go? Um, I, I think I would do the contender series as well. Um, yeah. I, I don't think I, um, I think I would be pretty boring to be on TV, um, as far as going through the show and stuff. And also I think, um, going through the show, you know, you, you get the experience and you get to, uh, um, you know, fight different fighters. And I feel like that's something I've kind of already done. I guess the thing about the show would be, um, you know, you get to be on TV, which is cool. You get to be on TV and, um, you know, get to meet new people. But I would much rather, instead of having to leave, like, my family and my coaches and everybody that I know and love, I'd rather just, you know, go fight and, um, you know, hopefully get that opportunity then if if, it, if I had to pick between the two. But if I had to pick, well, my very first pick would just to be get signed, you know, straight up. But, um, you know, if I had to pick between the two, I would pick the Contender Series. It also kind of seems weird, Tony, to even be discussing this. Obviously, it's a great question, but you're on UFC Fight Pass. You know, CES is one of the organizations that stream stuff uh, to Fight Pass, so that way UFC can have more fights to offer and, and a more variety, which is great. So it's kind of blowing my mind. that They obviously already know of you since you're a champion on one of their uh, fight past streaming services. So it's kind of strange. I do think one of the big things that comes out of the ultimate fighter, the tough ultimate fighter series is there's so much downtime and they cut you off 
from radio and TV and all that. And that's why that drama happens and people get drunk and talk trash. And I think, as you already said, you want to be a person that can hold his head high and be a role model to your fighters. So I kind of see it. Not that everybody that goes there has that attitude. But, you know, sometimes the coaches are inappropriate to each other. and It's this big drama house because you're there for six, eight weeks, completely cut off for everybody. So I do think that the Contender Series is actually a better representation of your fighter because you train in your own gym, you train it with your own people, and you literally just fly out for a fight as if you were a regular fighter like you just went to Connecticut. So I actually think that the Contender Series is, is probably a little bit more accurate um, a little bit more on point of what uh, a fighter can actually bring. Because sometimes the ultimate fighter, they're fighting twice in a week um, and stuff like that. And then you're not really getting the same level that they could do. So I'd love to see. Uh, I think the Contender Series is a better plan. And hopefully at some point we'll be having a conversation with you about an upcoming contender fight. That would make us uh, very happy. So if you, get, if you get any fight or if you defend again for CES, we'd love to interview you specifically about an upcoming fight. Because that that always makes a good interview as far as what your what your plans are. Uh, do you currently have any plans? You just fought last month. You told us that you train all the time. Um, is there is there a conversation, or are you just staying ready? Um, you know, I, I'm just staying ready. There, uh, you know, we've kind of talked about different fights. I guess I can't really say because it's nothing in sure. nothing in like in in a uh, writing or anything. So it's not. You know, it's not real until it's real. So, um, you know, of course, we're tr we're trying to find fights. Um, it's gotten a little harder to find fights. The more you, uh, I think, I've gotten to the point where, although I've been, I've only been fighting, um, maybe if including amateur, maybe like four years now. I've got a lot of fights. I've been very active. So, um, yeah. I guess my record scares certain people. Kind of, I mean, it's pretty. It's I've gotten up there in numbers. You know, so. Um, you know, it could be uh, that, you know, I've only been fighting for four years and uh, my record is I could have started just as, you know, same time as a guy that's six and oh, but um, yeah. so it, it's harder. So at this point, um, it's a little hard to find fights. Um, even, you know, the titles that I have, sometimes it's hard. Um, <laughs> I've heard I've, promoters told me I'm one of the hardest people to match for um, just because it's, you know, they, I guess they've had trouble finding people, but. You know, I'm hoping to hear something within this week about, um, you know, a possible fight. At least if not this week, then hopefully something within the next month or two. Because I like staying active. I think that's yeah. what's gotten me um, – that's what's helped me um, grow faster in my short amount of time fighting is the more I fight, the more real experience I'm getting and the more I'm able to um, adjust and – and um, grow as a fighter so uh, and also you know it could be the reason why I've gotten the opportunities I've gotten is because I've fought so much you know if I'd have gotten to the point where I had the the, the low point that I ha was talking about uh, but, you know, I lost a couple you know if I'd have uh, fought just like anybody else you know I could still be um, just getting out of that point right you know, I had so many it's just like that was only like a year and a half, two years ago, but it seems like forever ago because I've had so many fights. So, um, you know, it, you bring, it, up a really, you bring up a really good point with your, with your number of fights, staying busy, staying active. And I, I think there's different mindsets for different people. I have talked to local fighters 
that sometimes, and I, I mean no disrespect to local fighters, sometimes they treat themselves like they're already in the UFC, you know, only fighting twice a year or three times a year. And I completely agree with you. I think Jim would agree too that one of the goals of regional MMA is to develop you. Use fights as development, you know. And you know the expression, I'm sure. You either win or learn. And I think sometimes people aren't giving themselves the opportunity to learn from maybe a disappointing streak like like you had a little bit. But I think you're absolutely right. If you had taken a pace that a lot of fighters in the regional circuit take two to four fights a year, that little bit of a slowdown with a couple losses from a year and a half ago would still have been only a couple fights ago. And I, I think your development at the age of 27 um, is, is really – really on point. I hope our audience understands that you were, you were dead serious when you said a lot of fighters with your level of experience only have six or seven fights. Some of them might even be at the amateur level still deciding whether or not to go pro. You wrestled for Appalachian State. What was it like for that transition? I know we're jumping back in time now, four years, four and a half years. What was it like transitioning from the, the wrestling to, to MMA? Did you start doing MMA when you were still in college? like on the side to get yourself ready? Or did you just do it cold turkey, just jump right in once you were done college? Well, I guess I'll back back a lot of years, kind of. So, like, when I was younger, um, my, my dad taught Taekwondo. So I started taking Taekwondo. I was probably could, probably since I could walk. Um, so we did Taekwondo for, you know, until I was in sixth grade and I started wrestling. So, but, so throughout the whole time of me, as far as I can remember, Everything we watched was fight-related. We watched uh, MMA. This was back when UFC first started in, like, the 90s. Um, you know, back when it was no weight classes, all that stuff. Um, you know, every movie we watched was fighting. It was Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan. Um, any other fight movies you can think of, we watched. Rocky, all that stuff. Um, so, growing up, I've always, I've always, always knew I wanted to fight. And uh, my dad, did. he didn't want me to fight. He was, um, you know, he's one of those people, you only fight if you have to. And, uh, you know, I've fought all the time. I fought at school. I fought um, everywhere. I fought at church before. <laughs> and when I was younger, I fought, I fought a good amount. Um, and I always knew I wanted to, I wanted to be an MMA fighter. Um, me fighting all the time probably just came from me just I guess before I start wrestling, you don't really have that outlet to – and you, I mean, you're younger, you're less mature. Obviously, you're still a kid. Even when I started wrestling, I was still a kid. I was in sixth grade. But um, just I think wrestling helped me get over that bad stage. Um, so once I started wrestling, um, I still always wanted to fight. I never started training MMA because I wrestled through college. And uh, finally, once I graduated college, I um, – you know, I, I worked and I was, I got to the point where I was like, you know, I'm not doing, I'm not working out anymore for for a long time. You know, I'm going to be fat and happy. I'm not going to do anymore. And then, uh, you know, I, I got, you know, got past the, the point of, uh, well, knowing that I needed to start working out again. And uh, then I was like, well, I want to start fighting now. So I finally convinced my wife to let me start fighting. And uh, I, you know, I, I went, I trained, let's see, I probably, I probably trained for about two months before I had my first amateur fight. Wow. The transition was really, it was easy because obviously wrestling is a big part of fighting. And if you mm -hmm. can learn how to wrestle and not get caught in submissions or, um, you know, wrestle, if you're on top of somebody, you're taking less of a beating. So, yeah. um, 
you know, so the transition was pretty easy um, as far as wrestling and also knowing that I wanted to fight. You know, I, I say it as like, I was, a, I think of it as like, I was a fighter before I started wrestling. So um, I wrestled because I was a fighter, you know? So, um, and I always start wrestling as a fight without throwing punches. So um, now that I can add another thing into my fighting without throwing punches, now I can throw punches and kicks. And so it, it, it was, it didn't take long to, to make the transition and to know that that was what I really wanted to do with my life. Well, talk, you mentioned two things that take us back. Uh, one was, uh, one was you had been watching with your dad fight way back, all the way back in your childhood. Um, I have a question about that. And that is given where the UFC was when it started in the mid nineties and some of the, what we call first generation of fighters, uh, where do you think they would line up in today's MMA? Because there's been such a progression and such a development of MMA fighters like you who came in with a, a determination to be an MMA fighter, not to be the Gracies that when they came in to UFC, it wasn't to be an MMA fighter. They wanted to prove that jiu-jitsu is the better art, right? And then you had people that wanted to prove that uh, Shudokan Karate was the better art. And obviously a lot of that first generation stuff is gone now in the 90s and and it's become you got to be good at everything so where do you where do you think they'd rank against you or against current mma fighters um you know it's hard to say because you know these guys are like legends it's hard to say oh well you know this time it wouldn't have this wouldn't happen and you know but back then it, like you said it was more everybody was one style based and it it probably wasn't necessarily that they wanted to even uh, adapt their style it was just they wanted to show that what they had was the best so um with that type of attitude in today today now the M mma is its own thing like it's yeah. you, know, you got your boxing wrestling jiu-jitsu mm -hmm. and then you got mma so that transition of yeah. that transition of, of grappling to striking to wrestling all that stuff is its own thing so anybody from i think anybody from back in the day that came in that would come in with that with that mindset that this is the best and this is how you do it, it um, wouldn't do well today because there's, you know, so many people that um, know so much um, mm -hmm. of different arts. They may not be the best at each art, but they know enough to be dangerous to somebody that's only good at one thing. Absolutely. And, and that's a good point to make that MMA, and I, this is still interesting to point out when we talk to people that don't really know a lot, MMA is its own sport. It's just like how, American football was originally designed to be a less, uh, a more organized and less dangerous rugby. It is now its entire different sport, right? Nobody gets American football confused for rugby, right? Because it's a different thing. The, the, the athletes are different. The mindset's different. And I think we're at a point now, 25 years in, with UFC where MMA is now, and I completely agree with you, MMA is its own sport. If you want to be great at boxing and you want to be a great boxer, go do boxing, right? But if a boxer wants to be great at MMA, they're going to have to become comfortable in uncomfortable situations than what that they're used to. And, and I do think there was a couple people every once in a while when you watch some of the Bruce Lee videos and he's talking about being like water. I do think that there were some mindsets back then. Now, this is an if alternative universe, but there's some mindsets back in the day where some of those guys probably would have been up for learning whatever it took to win because that was kind of some of their mindset. But I do think there would have been some stubborn people that were more about that were more about 
improving their style, which is still beautiful. I'm still glad that there's traditional martial arts. My, my godson's taking uh, a traditional karate, and it's very good for him and discipline and, and you know, all that, that stuff. But I watched his katas, and I think, yeah, a lot of that stuff isn't going to work in MMA, you know. <laughs> um, no, and he's getting the belts and he's promoting, but he's eight, you know. And so if I had to choose, yeah, I think at eight, you could be doing MMA, but it's also not bad to kind of get the discipline and the self-esteem. Now, when we're talking about matching up, both Jim and I, we're, we're not asking for you to call anybody out. We're not asking for you to trash talk because that's not what show we'd want to run. I know that's not how you are. But given the state of the 135 division, Bantamweight division in the UFC right now, are there people in the division? And obviously, I know you're in talks with whatever organization, so don't give us any any spoilers. But are there some people that you see that are out there, maybe in Bellator UFC at the 135 pound, that you think I could be fighting them next month, and I'd be I'd feel completely confident doing that? Absolutely. I mean, I, I've been glued to every bantamweight. Um, since, I mean, within the past, well, for a while now, you know, when I first, when you first start fighting, it's all, well, if I make it to the UFC, if, 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 and now, you know, within the past couple of years, it's like, well, when I make it. So I've really been, you know, I watch every, um, I watch every fight anyway, every UFC event, every Bellator event, but, um, especially the Bantam weights, you know, I'm, I'm glued to it. And, you know, I, I'm always saying, you know, well, you know, everybody, they, I'm sure every, everybody does this anyway. Like, oh, I can beat that dude. And, you know, yeah. oh, all they have to do is this and this. So, but, um, yeah, there's a lot of band and weights. You know, I feel like, I feel like, um, you know, I could jump in there and I could take out a lot of those guys. And, uh, you know, I tr truly feel like that. You know, a lot of people say it, but, you know, I truly feel that way. I feel like uh, once I get my shot, um, I've thought about this. I, I'm, I think ahead, even though you really can't think ahead. You know, I feel like, um, within the next, um, you know, once I, once I do get that call, um, I feel like within the next, um, the next year I'll be within, um, within the next year of getting that call, um, I'll be top 15 in, in the world in the UFC. And I feel like, um, within the next two years after that, I'll be a UFC bandweight champion. Um, you know, I feel like in any, any time after that, my, my chances are going to go up, you know, I'm getting better. And I feel like I haven't even really scratched the surface of my full potential. I, I'm still, like I said, I've been yeah. doing this for four years. I still have a lot mm -hmm. of growth. I understand that. And I know that, um, you know, I'm not stuck in any way of fighting. I, I'm just trying to be a sponge to everything. So um, with that being said, I'm, I'm only going to grow. So um, the more the years go on, the more dangerous I'm going to get. Mm -hmm. And, closer I'm going to get to, to that belt. So, uh, but it, it will happen. It's going to happen. Well, that's a great, that's a great little, uh, mental. I think it's very important. You know, like you said, you can't play in too much because you got to fight the fight that's in front of you. And we've heard it a lot. The, the fight you're preparing for the fight you're fighting is the most important fight, right? You can't ever look, we've seen some of this happen. You can't ever look sometimes last minute replacements. You were mentioning when I get that call, then you kind of say from a year, want to get that call I, I it came to my mind that sometimes those calls are literally two weeks out or a week out and I would think although it would be best if you got signed up you know like ahead of time I, I would actually think that the UFC is probably at some point if they don't sign you straight up to get you on a contract which would be great I'm thinking at some point your phone's gonna ring you fought for CF 
is CES. You're you're a reigning champ. You fought on their UFC uh, fight pass. They clearly know who you are. I wouldn't be surprised if you end up getting one of those. Hey, are you in shape? Can you do this? And and one of the things that usually happens with a last minute replacement, and we've seen it go down, you know, way to the wire, you know, the day of, day before, is that person comes in with a mindset of it's my it's my time now. And a lot of times. The, the fighter that was originally scheduled kind of thinks, oh, who is this dude, you know? like and, and, and that's why it's so important that if you're ever in a situation where you're fighting the UFC and you fight a last-minute replacement, it's so important for you to have that same mindset you have now, which is every fight's most important. Also, I want to give a shout-out to Jim, who keeps track of all our sound bites, to keep that sound bite where you say you're going to be champ of Bantam White because you heard it here on MMA uh, <laughs> Fancast. And I think that's a beautiful – your confidence is there. I know Jim wanted to ask you a question, so I'm going to set it up. The Bantamweight division has been rocked right now by PEDs, and obviously TJ Dillashaw is out. Um, my, my thought process, because I know Jim's got a question, so I'm going to tiptoe around it, but my thought process is that people, and I don't mind saying it because when you, when you cheat, you cheat. The cheaters in any sport, they're not only cheating, but they're also preventing non-cheaters from being at the best in that sport. I'd have to think that when I was looking at your record, we talked, Jim and I talked about this. I said it before we started recording and before you joined on that it, it angers me, not only because cheaters cheat and they're getting ahead uh, illegally or with a, with an unfair advantage, but knowing you now and talking to you now and seeing your, your record and, and, and your, the, the role you're on, it's angering to me that people like you and some dude in Idaho, I don't know his name, right? Wherever they are, you know, there's, there's people out there at the Bantamweight division and all divisions that should be in the UFC right now if it weren't for, or should be at a higher level if it weren't for people uh, clogging up or, you know, taking the, taking the glory, winning belts, in TJ's case, with the aid of PED. So that's going to uh, transition into Jim. Jim, throw your question out because I all but asked it. But there you go. Yeah, I mean, you, you hear about uh, athletes really in all sports. Um, it's prevalent uh, years ago in the 80s. Um, and you know, a lot of it happened here in Pittsburgh. There was a big steroid scandal. Um, a lot of linemen, defensive linemen, offensive linemen were taking steroids mm -hmm. and it just, it was, it was a black guy on the, um, on the NFL at that time. Um, but PEDs in general, you know, cycling and Lance Armstrong and, and how he tainted his legacy, which is basically non-existent now. It, yeah. There is so much to lose when it comes to taking that chance to actually say this is going to get me over the edge or keep me on top for as long as I want to be. And I, I personally don't understand. I, I can't see where that motivation is to, to take the bait, so to speak, and go ahead and use what you know is a banned substance. And I was just curious, you know, it's, it's probably happened on the uh, regional, regional circuit too, you know, where guys think this is going to elevate them and get them noticed. So, you know, what in your opinion do you think it is that might motivate somebody like T.J. Dillashaw, um, you know, to, to do something like this where I think he's got the skills um, that he didn't need that, but he went ahead and did it anyways. I just – I don't understand why, you know, a fighter would turn to something like that. I don't know either. You know, my guess is that it's, you know, you got something to do with money and, you know, when mm. you make a certain amount, um, you want to – making more money you want to keep performing and maybe you know he's could be that he got to the point to where he felt like he had yeah. left out and maybe he just needed that extra boost but you know like I, for me um honestly you know like you said I, I think it's cheating as well 
And, um, you know, I feel like if, if I was in that situation, if I don't think I can do it mm. without it, then it's not meant to be, you know, if you've done all you can do and it just doesn't happen, then it's not meant to be, you know? Um, and when you cheat and you do things like that, it's, it's going to come around, you know, it's, mm. you're going to, you're going to, it's going to, there's going to get find out, found out, you're going to get fined, you know, people are going to look down on you. So, um, might as well not do it. I mean, it's, they're going to find it. They've got so many testings, um, yeah. you know, it's going to happen. I, I know, you know, people may be fueled by money and, you know, wanting to be the best and don't want to lose, um, you know, the, the shine that they have. But I mean, if you, you know, if, if it's your time to not be the guy, <laughs> then it's your time to not be the guy, you know, everybody's got their time. Yeah, you know, I see because of the time frame that you had sort of laid out for us a year and then two-year progression from that point, I see somewhere down the road uh, Tony Gravely and um, T.J. Dillashaw match up potentially. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, that has struck me about his situation, and I totally disagree with this line of, line of thought because, you know, I've experienced it myself playing sports. When you have time away, even if you are staying active like, like you say you're doing, even if you don't get the, the opportunity to mix it up, to, to get in uh, the ring, inside the cage, and actually go at it live instead of the sparring, um, I, I think the, the longer you get away from um, that, uh, that actual fight time, rust starts to build up. And Dominic Cruz – um, had talked about this a few years ago where he said ring rust is not real. And I completely disagree with that. And he made the, the comment that two years is nothing for Dillashaw. When he comes back, he's going to be the TJ Dillashaw that everybody knows. And I, I just don't see that happening. As active as you can be, you still need that time against a, a, a real opponent, taking real blows, putting everything you brought to the table in that fight camp putting it on the line and matching up against somebody. I just think that, you know, ring rust is a real thing. I, I, I agree with that. And I think also too, a part of ring rust, um, like taking time off and it's not necessarily that, I don't think it's necessarily that somebody's getting really rusty. It's just that competition is always improving. Yep. And mm -hmm. if you're not in there um, yep. facing that competition to improve, then you're not improving. So, um, so it's both, I think, you know, it's a little bit of both. I think that, um, if, uh, if somebody, everybody's always evolving, getting better. And if you're sitting out and you're not in that mix, getting better, these fighters aren't pushing you to, to better yourself. Yeah. And, you know, you're still training. Obviously when you're still training, you're getting better and you're fighting fighters that are, you're, you're, you're sparring with fighters that are getting better, but they're also, um, they're still not getting the real, you know, really hit people getting hit, you know, things like that. So I can see both sides. So I guess it's, I guess that's the same thing as what you're saying. It just kind of ties in a little bit. Yeah. The ring rust. And champ, the Dominic Cruz quote to me makes sense when you're Dominic Cruz. I think what happened is that, that I think that was a, a honest statement on his face, uh, his side. He was so far ahead. When he got injured and was out for three years, he was so far ahead of all other bantamweights, and I don't think that's a, a, a bad thing to say. I think he was, you know, eight years ago, so far ahead of everybody that 
he could take three years off from injuries, come back, and jump right in and still be the best. And I think he proved that. And I, I think for his sake, what you are saying is what real ring rust is. It, you're not able to test where the current level is. What we were just talking about, the forefathers of MMA, it's no disrespect. You didn't mean any disrespect when you said, of course they wouldn't be able to hang. If they're not training at the level that we are mixing in six, seven, eight disciplines, if they come in thinking that they could still win, if the Gracie mindset, 1995, showed up where they didn't even wrap their hands and didn't even care about punching at all and would win fights without throwing one punch, no way. Like, there's no way. And, and I, I don't think it's a disrespect. And jumping back to one of the best things you said tonight, which was dealing with the PEDs, um, as, as a fighter, the hardest thing for a fighter to have as the fighter is acceptance. And that is accept that when you win – uh, you're still no better than, than your next door neighbor or your girlfriend or your wife because obviously we see times where guys win and people get champion, championship status like John Jones and others and their moral behavior and their decision-making implodes because th th they're starting to think they're better than other people. And then we've also seen fighters get to a point where they're no longer, like you said, it's just not, it's not meant to be anymore. It's not your time. You just don't have it. And then they can't accept that. I think of a legendary like a legend like Chuck Liddell coming back to fight for Bellator. It, it just it it made it made no sense. He didn't fight for Bellator, but for him to come back, it didn't make sense because he's just not accepting where his body is. And so here's the thing that that's an MMA related thing. When you're at boxing and you're the the Floyd Mayweather, you're somebody that's at the peak. There's only two weapons. I think what makes MMA so beautiful is that U.S. champ of UFC in the future. You don't have to use PEDs, and I, and I will say this about anybody because it just means that you need to keep learning more facets of MMA because there's always an aspect of MMA that you can learn. And I agree, at some point you're going your, to hit your limit and your level and people will start beating you and that's just the way it is, or you'll retire like GSP and kind of never, sort of never let it down and always kind of – and so I do think there's a way. But when you were saying that, it's about, it's about being humble enough to say just because – I feel like I don't want to keep learning doesn't mean I shouldn't. And I think somebody like TJ Dillashaw or somebody else that uses PDs might get to the point where thinking, man, I might not be able to keep winning or I'm worried about paycheck or I'm not winning big enough or whatever. And instead of trying to find something to add or a way that they can get better, like you said very honestly earlier that some of your losses that you suffered a couple years ago, if you rematch them, you'd win because you're a better fighter. And so I think the, the answer is having an honest, and, and it does, it does concern me because obviously bang came out afterwards, but it would, it would be shocking to me as a coach. And, and I don't mean, I haven't even coached the high level pros like Tia Dillashaw. It's a shock to me that somebody like bang wouldn't know that he was using because coaches that, that train you, they know your limits. Right. And let's say that, the champ, Tony, one day comes in, and instead of being able to do two and a half hours or three hours of hard work, you're doing six hours of hard work. <laughs> you don't slow down at all. And you're like, a thousand burpees, no problem. I mean, at some point, and, and I say that kind of to be humorous, but you get me. You feel what I'm saying. Like, the reality is Cody, Cody always said when he was fighting TJ, he always said, listen, he's a cheap. He's a steroid user. I know we used to train together. Everybody knew. Um, everybody knew in our, in our gym at Alpha Male. He taught other people to use it, Alpha Male. And then he went and obviously Bang said, oh, I didn't know. But 
it, it also is concerned to me as as a coach and as somebody that that wants to respect coaches that there's some coaches out there that know that their fighters are u- using either because they provided it or see it or recommend it or maybe a different way is that their fighter gets it on their own but then their coach can know that they're using so I think it's also the, the same morality you were talking about being a fighter and being a trainer of the kids it's also coaches that need to stop thinking oh well as long as he's winning and I, I'm kind of calling bang out although I mean no disrespect to him, but what does it say as a coach when your star pupil that moved across the country from California to Colorado to follow you that your boys with, what's it to say that your best known pupil is a steroid cheat, a a PD cheat that that pretty much probably made his last five or six wins possible because of his cardio conditioning. Just to me, it's, it's also time for the coaches to take somebody aside and say, Hey dude, you got to be on something because I know what your limit is. And here's, here's the deal. Here's the deal, TJ. You're not going to fight out of my gym again until I know that you're clean, until I can see that you're starting. Because with the research I've done on that drug he did, um, and that's some of the Lance Armstrong stuff, it gives you such an endurance where, where it's noticeably different. You know, Lance Armstrong has famously said that he would have won zero of his titles, zero of his Tour de France if he wasn't on stuff because that's the honesty of where PEDs take you. They're not performance enhancing drugs for, for a reason. You know, they're called that for a reason. So I'm on my soapbox. Um, Jim, why don't you fire off our in the pit to kind of end it on a fun segment uh, for Tony. Tony, uh, Jim, can you pull those up? Yeah, um, I can. Tony- Actually, I got one question for you because, Luke, Luke, you made mention of this, and this is what reminded me of it. Um, you said morality, and I'm going to go back to something you said, Tony. And just in in talking to you, I can hear uh, humbleness and respect. Um, Luke mentioned the word morality, and um, knowing a little bit about um, your past and um, and seeing you post fight and how you handle yourself um, with the interviews, you said that. Um, to go on The Ultimate Fighter, it would be boring. And in today's MMA, it's flash and dazzle and attitude and um, and somewhat uh, an attitude of disrespect that sells. And that's what they're looking for. Um, but we all have these things that we gravitate towards that um, that show a side of our personality that uh, maybe you know people don't really get to see that often. Um, and sometimes we get to see that in a fighter's walkout song. So I was curious what, if there's something that you use consistently, um, and then, you know, whatever it is, why do you use that particular song? So my, my walkout song? Yeah. I've had, I've had a couple of different ones. Um, I, I really like, I like Tupac. And, uh, you know, my, my last couple of songs, um, my last couple of fights, it's been Can't See Me by Tupac. And it's just one of those things where um, it, the song is, is somewhat cocky, but I'm not a cocky person. But sometimes you got to have that mentality in your head that, you know, you can't be touched just to fuel you through something. So um, for me, um, it's almost like the opposite. You know, I'm, I'm really humble and, and I, I don't talk trash and I don't. I don't brag, but like, you know, in your head, you kind of have to have somewhat of uh, that to motivate yourself. It's sure, almost yeah. over exaggeration to, to 
for yourself. So as long as you keep it within yourself, you know, I would never go out and, and uh, you know, brag and, you know, talk bad about anybody or anything like that. But that's usually – that's that one has been my last – maybe my last three fights probably have been that one. Interesting. Okay, so as, uh, as Luke mentioned – one of the things that we do for all first-time guests is we do this um, segment at, at the end of the podcast. It's called In the Pit. Now, um, you have been to Pittsburgh before. Uh, you were actually in Washington, PA, which is like 20, 25 minutes tops, tw- 25 minutes tops from uh, s- uh, south, south of uh, Pittsburgh. Um, that's when you fought Francis Healy at King of the Cage. Um, and actually, I was there for that fight. And that was the fight that was your first fight after ha- having dropped two in a row. So I feel like I have something to do with that and, and get <laughs> back in the, in the win column. So, um, but, so you've got um, a little, you know, little taste of Pittsburgh. Um, what In the Pit does is it'll tell us how much of uh, a Pittsburgher you are, um, if you're from here, or how much you know of Pittsburgh, or for some people – what little you know about it. Um, so these are just random questions. Uh, we're going to fire them off uh, to you. You have um, five seconds to answer it. You know, just go with it with whatever pops into your head and you think is the correct answer. Okay. And there's, they're all over the place. All right. <laughs> I'm not going to do well. I don't know much about Pittsburgh. All right. All right. Okay. So um, this is going to go back uh, quite a, quite a uh, ways ago. And um, there was a, a kid's show on uh, public uh, broadcast television. Um, And it was um, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. But, uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard of the Pittsburgh Steelers and the dynasty that they put together um, led by Chuck Knoll. Have you ever heard of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Yes. Okay. I was younger. There you go. All right. Okay. We had somebody – actually, I think we had two fighters who never, never heard of it. Everybody knows Mr. Rogers. See, that's what I thought too. Okay, so they they both go way back. Of those two, those two um, Pittsburgh icons, which um, came first, Pittsburgh Steelers hiring Chuck Noll as their head coach, or Mr. Rogers airing for the first time nationally? Um, Mr. Rogers is that is that right? That's what I would go with. So um, Chuck Knoll was hired in 1969, January 27th, as um, Steelers head coach. Mr. Rogers' um, neighborhood debuted nationally February 19th of 1968. So you are correct. Yes. I All right. Like it. Here's, a, here's another one for you, champ. What condiment, what food condiment is Pittsburgh known for? What food condiment? You put it on food. Uh, mustard. I mean, it's kind of close, Jim. It's kind of close. Heinz does make both. It's Heinz ketchup, but they do make Heinz mustard. They do make a Heinz mustard. Okay, so while we're on that topic, this is this is uh, stopping in the pit for a second. Um, <laughs> do you put ketchup on on burgers or hot dogs or anything like that? Yeah, I well, I use I put it on burgers, but I only put mustard and chili on hot dogs. Okay. Uh-huh. So what uh, what brand of ketchup do you use? And this this will determine whether or not this podcast gets aired. You have to. I'm pretty sure it's usually Heinz. 
Hines. Okay, good answer. Podcast <laughs> will air. Okay. All right, so I, I, I've got one more question, and then Luke is going to finish up the in the pit. Okay, what was invented in Pittsburgh? The Klondike Bar or cotton candy? Cotton candy. Okay. So uh, Klondike was invented in Pittsburgh in 1929. Cotton candy was introduced at the Saint Lu- in St. Louis at the World Fair in 1904. No. And the last question, and, and, unless, you're a, unless you're a big college football fan, you might not know this, uh, but it, it's really been a great question for a lot of our guests, and that is um, in history, going as far back as you can, which Pennsylvania school – has won more national football titles to their name, the Pittsburgh Panthers, which are right in Pittsburgh, University of Pitt, or the Penn State Nittany Lions? In football? In football. Uh, the Lions, Nittany Lions, Penn State. And that's the thing. It, it's not. It's, 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 not. <laughs> it's the Pitt Panthers. Panthers. And it's, I tripped up every guest we've had so far because it's such a it's such a weird it was so long time ago it was before kind of the legendary and and sort of the run that uh penn state went on but there you go i'd say i'd say you 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 answered well you did your best at least you knew who mr rogers neighborhood was we'll give you we'll give you an honorary pittsburgh title and it was it was great like i mentioned like mentioned tony as we wrap up here is we would love to continue to follow you. Obviously, Jim's followed you a little bit before me, back from 2017 when you beat uh, Healy. But we would love to continue to follow. Thanks so much for talking about your goals and kind of where your career is going, your most recent fight in March. And congratulations again on your on your championship uh, defense for CES. It's just you're a great guy, and we hope to follow you from years to come. And we hope to still be interviewing you when you're the UFC Bantamweight champ. That'll be wonderful. Oh, that would be amazing. I would love it. Have my belt on my shoulder on one of your Well, tell you what, tell you what, when you win the UFC belt and you want it on your shoulder, we'll figure out a way to put this on YouTube so that it's a video and not just the radios because we want to make make most of your belt. So okay, you awesome. <laughs> thanks so much for being on the show, Tony. We really appreciate you. And uh, give us a heads up when you have something scheduled for your next fight, whether it be um, a different organization or CES. We'd love to get you back on before your next fight. Yes, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, brother. Enjoy the coverage. Thanks, Tony. Our pleasure. The podcast today, it's been a great podcast. I think both Jim and I can say that it's been it's been fun. His level of humility mixed with his desire to win and the aggression to, to finish fights and to be a dominant and his future plans and the fact that Tony can see himself being a UFC champion, I think – if you know him and if you want to look up his record and follow some of his fights and follow him from now on, I really think that will be a possibility for him. And I think that his future and what we want to keep doing on MMA FanCast is interviewing fighters um, on their journey and really following them on their journey. So thanks for listening to this podcast of MMA FanCast. I've been Luke Payson. And as always, I'm joined with my co-host, Jim Mooney. Thanks for checking us out. And uh, as we end this show, we say, that's it for Pitt.